0: Now, for the most meaningless gesture in the cosmos, according to my daughter, the timer. <laughs> if you have your copy of the Scriptures, if you'd open to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, I believe that's page 932 in the Pew Bible, if you don't have one with you, I'm going to look at um, what really is an extraordinary passage. It is both... And and I intend to address it this way because it's what it is. It's both an exhortation and an encouragement. I pray it will really come through that way. It is seven verses that are uh, extraordinarily powerful. When uh, Pastor Matt uh, set out the sermon schedule and gave me this portion, he simply titled it, Pray for All People. Um, and that's the title couldn't be more spot on because that's exactly what this is. It's not a suggestion; it actually is uh, a command. The, the Paul is enjoining us. He's saying, "Look, this needs to be done. It isn't just a, a religious idea. It's something that is of the utmost necessity." And given the the flow of Paul's thought so far in the book. If you remove the artificial chapter break that's here, you're going to see why it has to be read in connection with what came before as much as what goes on after. And if we miss that, we really miss about half of what I think the Holy Spirit is after in this portion. Uh, As our pastor has preached all these past weeks, and I hope you've been paying attention, Paul has been urging his young protege, Timothy, to remain uh, at large in this city, this cosmopolitan and thoroughly pagan city, to continue the vital work within its church that needs to be done. There were some real challenges there. We've heard about them. Again, some had risen up in the church and they were veering from the foundational simplicity of salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. And Paul diagnoses that problem in verse 7 of chapter 1 where he says that desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So in the process, as we've heard, they were bringing three things to bear in the church, three things that were disturbing the peace there. First, myths, most probably Jewish myths. Uh, Judaism has a very, very rich mythology. I'd, I'd love to go down that rabbit trail because there were some extraordinary things like you may not know this, but Eve was not Adam's first wife. Uh, his first wife's name was Lilith, but she didn't want to submit to him, so she ended up being a demon and the mother of crib death. That's a whole. So there were a lot of these weird Judaism myths that needed to be dealt with. And then, as uh, Matt talked about, the. Uh, using genealogies as giving them some sort of spiritual importance, and then lastly, what Paul simply styles as different doctrine, different from what they had, that foundation that had been laid originally. And all of these combined served to steer people off into speculations and curiosities rather than the call to the church to be stewards of the gospel and the doctrinal foundation that Paul had laid in the previous years of ministry there. It's interesting that before the the New Testament closes, there is a body of truth that is a closed body of truth, that when we veer from that, we really get into trouble. And so new revelations and new things coming on the scene are always to be suspect, because this was set before us. Uh, centuries ago and so it remains a perennial problem in the church and why we don't again want to take the beginning of chapter 2 as though Paul is automatically just switching gears or taking up an entirely new subject. He really isn't. Timothy's been charged to confront these certain persons about the errant doctrines and get the church back on track. As it was put I think last week to fight the battle of guarding the word and the gospel. That's that's what had had to be happening here. But the question of course is how is that to be best done? What do, what do we do in the face of these things? And certainly Paul had mentioned confrontation and certainly there had been church discipline, but are those the only two things? And this chapter is saying a resounding no. In fact, Timothy's First and primary means, according to the text, is prayer. Prayer. So the text begins, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. First of all, Timothy, pray. And in fact, get the whole church praying. You you all need to be praying in the face of what has come in to the doors of the church. And that brings us then to the first consideration in the text. And I'm going to work these. There's six points here, not an apostolic number. That would be 12, so I'm going to stick to just six points. I'm going to be half apostolic this morning. And out of seven verses, but you'll see how they tie together. And so his very first admonition is the priority of prayer. We get that in verse 1 through the beginning of verse 2. First, then, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. So, in addressing the issues like those facing Timothy and the church at Ephesus, prayer is to take first place. We are to be a praying people. If we're nothing else, we ought to be a praying people. Let me give you a quote from J.C. Ryle at the beginning of this. He wrote a fabulous essay on prayer, which, if you can get your hands on it, is worth its weight in gold. Quote, Prayer is the most important subject in practical religion. It's pretty startling. All other subjects are second to it. Reading the Bible, keeping the Sabbath, hearing sermons, attending public worship, going to the Lord's table, all these are very weighty matters but none of them are so important as private prayer. I do not deny that a man can pray without heart and without sincerity. I do not for a moment pretend to say that the mere fact of a person praying proves everything about his soul. As in every other part of religion, so also in this, there is plenty of deception and hypocrisy. But this I do say, that not praying is a clear proof that a man is not yet a true Christian. He cannot really feel his sins. He cannot love God. He cannot feel himself a debtor to Christ. He cannot long after holiness. He cannot desire heaven. He has yet to be born again. He has yet to be made a new creature. He may boast confidently of election, grace, faith, hope, and knowledge, and deceive ignorant people, but you may rest assured it is all vain talk if he does not pray. Quote. Now that may be uh, awfully confrontational in our day and age, to hear something like that. And I'm going to revisit Ryle before we're all done on this subject, but it may be jarring to us to hear it put quite that way. I don't know if you've ever faced times of monumental need or challenge in your life, and then in one of those moments said something like, well, all we can do now is pray. I know I've said that. And how backward how backward to make prayer the last resort rather than the first and most important response to issues both great and small and issues both inside and outside of the church. So it is, Paul enjoins, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings are to be made. And notice two things in this opening portion. First, they are to be made for all people, not just about all people I'm really good at praying about people not always as good for praying for people and secondly for all people so again if we don't disconnect the chapters we're being drawn into something that is powerfully important in regard to those Timothy is to engage within the church veering from the sacred trust of the gospel And then in regard to those outside of the church, even to those in secular power, which he's going to bring up in just a few verses. So what are you to do, Timothy, in response to those engaging in false doctrine and errantly teaching the law and bringing in myths and speculative genealogies? (laughs) Supplicate God on their behalf. That's an interesting twist. While some have made much of the four terms that Paul uses there, Uh, I don't want to get lost in those weeds because I don't want to lose the central thrust of what's going on. In truth, those terms kind of overlap one another, and and we don't want to uh, magnify the difference between them too much. But I do want to stay on this, what Paul says. Pray for them. Pray for them. And in what way? Merely regarding their actions? No. And this is, this is where this whole thing comes together, a point which if you get nothing else that we deal with this morning, please get this. Don't forget that these people, these troublemakers in the church and those outside the church that he'll address later, they are living souls who are going to have to stand before God and give an account And if they aren't wise enough to be afraid for their own souls, you pray for them. You be concerned for their status. Don Carson uh, cites a really interesting experience that kind of brings the emphasis home to the soul aspect of this that I want to tease out for a moment. He mentions that once he and his wife were members of a church where a gal in the congregation had developed a very severe cancer. And by all accounts, she was a wonderful, energetic servant of Christ. And she had beaten cancer once, and now it had come back. And it had come back with a vengeance. And so the church had set aside a special day of prayer for her, a special evening of prayer. And about 300 people from the church attended this prayer meeting, Um, As as they wanted to intercede and joy Don's wife was one of the people who attended this meeting and then he writes this let me quote The prayers became more and more enthusiastic as the day rolled on Lord you know what things that Paula has done and how important her service is to the church of God worldwide Lord isn't Jesus himself the great physician Will you not have mercy on her? Lord, we name your grace. We agree together, two or three of us together, that this is what must be done. We claim it in Jesus' name. Isn't healing in... And he said it went on and on and got more and more enthusiastic. And when it came time for Joy Carson to pray, she prayed this. Heavenly Father... We really would love it if you would heal, dear Paula. And maybe in your mercy you will. But if not, then teach her to die well. Give her a legacy of faith for her husband and children. Give her an anticipation of glory so that she's hungry to see the master's face. Free her up from the links that tie her here so that she's homesick for heaven. Give her the kind of testimony that exalts Christ. Teach her to die well, close quote. Carson says you could have cut the atmosphere with a knife. I believe it's so. We don't pray much like that anymore. And it isn't that we don't pray for Aunt Bertha's ingrown toenail. We do. Those things are real and they're, and they're there. But, but if we stop there and we don't pray about her soul we really haven't done much yet. We need to intercede for church troublers, not just in terms of what they're doing, but as morally responsible people before God and how their actions impact the church of God and and that they are going to have to give an answer. And even to give thanks for them rather than just writing them off. You say, how how Timothy was, was Timothy to give thanks for these people? I mean, two of them we know by name had already been excommunicated. And and in regard to troublers, do we give thanks? Yeah. Yeah, we get a hint of that in, in 1 Corinthians 11 where Paul says, For in the first place when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized, close quote. Even in that, God is administrating, is sovereign, and we can give thanks for how that works. Even those types of circumstances should incite thanks to God on our behalf. And on top of that, Timothy, if I can... Put words in Paul's mouth. Supplicate God on behalf of the souls of those who are in secular authority. In Timothy's case, that would have meant Nero and the wretchedly pagan and persecuting Roman government. Yes, Timothy, pray for them too. Intercede for them as those who will have to stand before God and give an account as morally responsible people for how their actions will impact not only the church, but society as a whole. And give thanks for them. Why give thanks for them? Because human government is a gift from God. And we don't want to overlook that. But don't just write them off. Now isn't that instructive for you and me? And how we pray both for errant churchmen and our own political leaders. Close to home, New York has become what is referred to as an abortion destination state. What a title. It's catering to what is gruesomely called abortion tourism. I can't even fathom that concept. And the blood of those babies especially stains the head of Governor Hochul and our state legislators. So let me ask you, have you ever shed a tear for them by name? Because they're going to have to stand before God and give an account. And that should terrify us, even if it doesn't terrify them. Have you ever, no matter what side of the political aisle you're on, have you ever wept in prayer for the soul of President Biden or Vice President Harris or for the previous administration and their staff? We're more than adept at calling out the failings of our public servants. And believe me, we should never be shy at calling sin, sin. That should never be far from us. No matter who the party is and no matter matter what the party is or who the person is. But what about their souls? These people who wage war. The souls of thousands Hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions, weigh on their heads. And we're the only ones who can stand before the living God and plead on their behalf. Oh, what what He's placed within our hands. and, And sometimes these things don't even enter into our imaginations. But if we did take up the habit of such supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings, How might that then shape our attitudes, especially in our public discourse? In those places on Facebook where we kind of let loose. Wouldn't that be a strange spectacle to the world? If we all got on Facebook tomorrow and prayed for those in authority above us. And not just about them, but for them. It would be a strange spectacle to the world, and even if not, wouldn't it be most pleasing to our God who breathed out these words by His Holy Spirit to us? Irrespective of how we interpret the, the phrase in this portion, all people here, whether simply as all classes of people or literally all people individually, the text certainly leaves no one out. Who does not stand in need of grace? And think about this personally for a moment. Who is it that you bar from your own prayers? Who do you keep at bay? Oh, that we might learn this first lesson, the great priority of prayer and how it's to be the priority in the life of the believer And again, prayer for people and not just about them. It's not just a religious response. It's immensely practical. And so his next thought comes to us in the second half of verse 2. Verse 2 reads, For kings, pray for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead up. A quiet and peaceful and godly, godly life dignified in every way. This is the power of prayer. Now, that title is a bit of a misnomer. And so before I move on in this, I'm going to make a statement that I would, I would prefer that everyone remove their hand from any solid or hard object that might be flung at my direction. Would, would you do that first? I've told people sometimes I don't care if you throw fruit, just take it out of the can first. I I prefer not to be pelted. but, But stay away here. I'm going to make this statement. Are you ready for it? I absolutely do not believe in the power of prayer. And neither should you. Let me explain that. Because prayer is often styled as some sort of generic cosmic force that you and I can just tap into to get the universe or God to see things our way and do things uh, the way we want them done. But prayer isn't magic and it isn't religious cosmic arm twisting. And it doesn't gain power because we do it just right. Because we use Elizabethan English or Neil or say just the right formulaic words or get enough people to pray with us or or end it with magic words it's powerful because the god we pray to is powerful and he hears us it isn't prayer that's powerful it's our god who is sovereign and that's why we pray we can pray till our tongues fall out of our heads that itself does nothing but our god is the one who does all things prayer accomplishes much because the one we pray to has all the power to do all things and in our text looking to God in prayer he's going to argue here can change the fabric of our church and can fa- change the fabric of our nation because God can do those things It's not only acceptable, but it's pleasing to God when we pray for circumstances to be such that we might lead quiet and peaceful lives in all dignity. He loves that. And again, this has dual application. Confusing teaching, which takes the focus off of Christ and off of sound biblical doctrine, upsets the souls of the saints and brings chaos into the church. In Paul's second letter to Timothy, he cited how some there had been teaching that the resurrection had already happened and that swerving from the faith in this way was upsetting the faith of some. And that word upsetting in the original carries with it the idea of ruining or overturning, subverting, uh, corrupting their faith. What a diabolical thing it is for people to turn away from simply trusting Christ to other things that make their souls untrusting and uneasy and failing to rest in the finished person and work of Christ. But gathering in earnest to pray, we can see such subversions overthrown so that Christ's people may live before Him peacefully and with quiet souls, which promotes growth in life holiness whereas controversies in the church bring agitation and they trouble the church and eventually they rob the church of her dignity and so it is with those in political power how miserably our politicians often act, not being able to work together for the common good of the populace and getting lost in endless bickering and infighting and indecision and public rancor. And these men and women need to be rescued from their sinful ways that bring upheaval to the, the general population. How they it foments fear and uncertainty. And by these endless distractions and distresses, it causes people to fix their hearts and minds on the things of this world and leaves no room to contemplate eternal verities and the things that are most necessary for the soul. Brothers and sisters, we need to pray for them. They're a mess, and we need to pray for them. And Paul ties such pleas for this peaceful and quiet life to the salvation of those who are in civil authority. When Israel was still in its Babylonian captivity, Jeremiah wrote a letter to the exiles, the text of which is just fabulous and and well worth reading. But in Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7, we read this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, To all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. And then this statement. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. It's astounding. And it's so contrary to what is often popular Christianity in in the public realm today. Imagine, pray for the welfare of your captors and for the pagan state that they rule over, and for those who persecute you. It's amazing. And this is the power of our God, that in answer to prayer, He can change the very fabric of our churches when they're disrupted from veering off into things that are not essential to the gospel and for men's souls, and the very fabric of our nation as we plead on on its behalf. Prayer by itself isn't powerful, can't do a thing, but our God is, and he can do all things. That brings us to verse 3. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. This is the pleasure of prayer, and as you may have guessed here, this is a wonderful thing to consider. The pleasure being referred to in this place is God's, not ours. He delights to have us pray. He delights to include us in His working in the world through prayer. And He delights in having us seek Him in everything. Uh, I'm not a mathematician. I'm not a scientist. I don't play one on TV. And I haven't slept at a Holiday Inn Express. So I I, I can lay nothing here. But one of the things that I think is true when we deal with things of an infinite nature... God, being omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, everywhere all at once, in a very real sense, can give everyone his undivided attention at the same time. He's never too busy to hear you. He's never put off by the small things. Instead, he draws us in and says, bring everything to me. Bring everything to me. Because there's never a lack of resource. It's not like he can only bless so much and you've reached your quota. And, and, and if he blesses you, he can't bless somebody else. It doesn't work that way. No, we, we bring it all to him. And he had delights to include us in this and praying this way with supplication and prayer and intercession and thanksgivings for all people, even for those in supreme authority outside the church so that we can lead these quiet and peaceful lives in all godliness and dignity. It's both good and it's pleasing to him. Have you ever asked yourself, and some of you may have been in this position where you've said, what what can I do to please my God? Well, this text tells you. If there's nothing else, he really loves this. Pray. You have this pointed answer right here. In Psalm 50, uh, Asaph, who penned that psalm, communicates God's displeasure with Israel at point in time, uh, on their dependence on rituals and just doing the law rather than their hearts being close to him. And when God calls them to repent in Psalm 50, uh, verses 14 and 15 read this way, quote, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you. And you shall glorify me. Did you catch that third line? Call upon me in the day of trouble. He loves to be called upon. It is an act of faith to turn to him with all that distresses us. And he receives it as such. And, and he trusts that he hears you. And trust that he loves you in Christ today. Trust that he will answer in his perfect wisdom, in his perfect timing, and in his perfect way. Many an earnest saint I know has lamented their lack of spiritual gifting or money to support the ministry better or that they don't have any talents or opportunities that they can put their hand to but beloved each and every one of us can be committed to and engaged in the very front line of spiritual service through supplications prayers intercessions and thanksgivings every one of us You can pray on your sickbed, you can pray in your home, you can pray in the car, you can pray in your plane, in the park, anywhere, anytime. I do have to laugh, there were times when people have said in the past, this is again a bit of a misnomer, sometimes our rhetoric outpaces our theology. We banned prayer from the schools. You can't. That's an impossibility. Are the prayer police coming around while your lips aren't moving and silent and saying, I know your thoughts, you can't do that? No, that's that's foolishness. And I'll tell you, every atheist prays when they get to that test they haven't studied for. We can pray, pray all the time. It requires no special education, no money, no natural ability, no overt opportunity for ministry, and we can not only please our Lord, but join in His work in the world through our prayers. It's extraordinary. Never forget that one of the most eloquent, effective prayers ever heard and answered was when Peter had stepped out of the boat and started to sink as he was trying to walk to Jesus, and it's only two words in the Greek, Lord, save! Real eloquent, huh? There wasn't even a thee, wilt thou save? None of it. Just Lord, save! And it was answered. Don't discount prayer as though it's little more than wishful thinking or religious rhetoric. It is service of the highest order. Now, I I really, I want to just linger here, but we can't. We can't. We really can't. Some of you may be praying a certain way very quickly. Which leads us to the fourth point in verse 4 who desires, this is why he says to pray this way, this is the grand purpose of prayer, because he desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The end game here is the salvation of souls. How are the church and the nation most impacted for the common good so that we can lead peaceful, quiet, godly, dignified lives and so that the gospel has its best opportunity to spread? Well, when the most people are brought to saving faith in Christ and are transformed by His Spirit. And note again, this is directly tied to what came before in chapter 1. Those who were troubling the church and then it's applied to kings and those in authority. And I don't want to jump here. I'm well aware of the controversy that surrounds this passage. And, and sometimes even we who consider ourselves champions of the doctrines of grace have pressed our case in such a way as to, to twist this, this verse out of its plain reading. But what Paul writes here is no counter to the doctrine of election, or nor is it concerning the extent of the atonement. It's transparently to keep us from writing anyone off in engaging their souls for the gospel and for their salvation. Nobody's outside that realm. No one's to be excluded from the gospel call, nor from our prayers to that end. And some might ask, well, how does that fit with... God's sovereign choice in election. Hear me clearly. I don't know. And and the good thing is, I don't have to know. It's above my pay grade. Right? That belongs with the sovereignty of God. He has worked that out. I can't. Uh, our responsibility, our commission, is to include all without exception in terms of prayer and evangelism. And His is to save as he sees fit through the means and the efforts that he's assigned to us. If you're not familiar with it, I want to introduce you to a very useful word in this place. It is the word antinomy. So this is a little short little lesson here. One dictionary defines antinomy this way. Quote, the word antinomy denotes the rationally irreconcilable contradiction between two equally well grounded laws or statements. <laughs> let, me, let me repeat that. It denotes the rationally irreconcilable contradiction between two equally well-grounded laws or statements. J.I. Packer in his wonderful little book Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God appeals to this word in this way uh, when he is addressing human responsibility and divine sovereignty. Quote, modern physics faces an antinomy in its study of light There is cogent evidence to show that light consists of waves and equally cogent evidence to show that it consists of particles. It's not apparent how light can be both waves and particles, but the evidence is there. And so neither view can be ruled out in favor of the other. And neither, however, can be reduced to the other or explained in the terms of the other. The two seemingly incompatible positions must be held together and both must be treated as true. Such a necessity scandalizes our tidy minds, or I could have said tiny minds in my case, uh, no doubt, but there's no help for it if we're to be loyal to the facts. And using that same concept, John Stott, when commenting on this verse, writes this, quote, Wherever we look in Scripture, we see this antinomy divine sovereignty and human responsibility, universal offer and electing purpose, the all and the sum, the cannot and the will not. The right response to this phenomenon is neither to seek a superficial harmonization by manipulating some part of the evidence, nor to declare that Jesus and Paul contradicted themselves, but to affirm both parts of the antinomy as true while humbly confessing that at present our little minds are unable to resolve it, close quote. And the truth is, we have lots of these antinomies in Scripture. Depends on how you ask the questions. How's this? Is God one or is he three? Well, the answer is yes. Right? Is Jesus God or is he man? Uh, yes. Is the Scripture God breathed or is it penned by men? Yes. Is, are you getting a headache yet? Oh, it's okay. There will be free Advil out in the, in the foyer. Uh, a foyer. If you're from Canada, um, is 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 God sovereign, or are people morally responsible? Yes. Uh, does God desire all men to be saved, or does He sovereignly elect only some to salvation? Yes. Whatever the secret will of God in who He will save in His sovereignty, transparently. Ours is to consider no one outside the power of his grace and to give ourselves to pleading for their souls. For Timothy, that again would have included Nero and the pagan polytheistic Roman Senate, the pagan Christ-opposing local politicians in Ephesus and the culture they were in and those who had sprung up in the church causing so much trouble. People need Christ. And he's given us the privilege of preaching him and praying that they might come to him. As God addresses Israel when it was far gone in its idolatry in Ezekiel 33. He says, say to them as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But that the wicked turn from his way and live, turn back and turn from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? How does that square with election and divine sovereignty? That's up to Him. The passage simply says He desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, and that principle is to vitally inform our prayers, which leads us to our fifth, the person of prayer. Verses 5 and 6, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. This task is specifically and especially given to the church because we are Christ's and He is ours and because there's no other hope but Him. Remember, beloved, it's Christ alone who's opened this door of prayer for us. And it's Christ alone who can save the lost And it's Christ's mission that we're drawn into in prayer, joining in His mediatorial work and praying for the souls of men. Part and parcel of the new covenant which Christ instituted is the wonder of prayer like the world had never known before. And the difference was so apparently stark, so profound, that the apostles came to Jesus and they were... They were observant Jews. They were steeped in prayer. Judaism is a a prayer religion, if you will. And yet they came to him and said, something's different here. Teach us to pray. We're seeing something in you. And as Hebrews 4 reminds us, Jesus, in his high priestly role, has passed through the heavens for us and as a sympathizing intercessor, has made the way so that we can draw near to the very throne of God with confidence that we'll receive grace and mercy in the time of need. That belongs to us. And that's not religious rhetoric, it's reality. And I, I fear we don't take enough advantage of it and take it as seriously as we should. The Old Testament saints prayed, but not like we can. Not like, like we know how to pray because we're adopted sons and daughters in the kingdom. We have an access they they couldn't have even imagined back then. And since Jesus alone is the single mediator between God and men, we know just how to pray. Pray that the seed of the gospel will find purchase in their hearts. Pray that their eyes will be opened to their sin and their lost condition and how it's met in Christ's cross work as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Pray that they'll be delivered from their self-deception and the blinding tactics of the enemy and the self-righteousness that keeps them bound in their sin pray for them. As we heard from uh, pastor just so forth forcefully just a few weeks ago, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. You can't pray any better than that. We can never be praying more in line with the will of God than when we pray for the salvation of men's souls. It's a glorious call. And no wonder in this all headed up in Christ alone, no wonder it is that when Paul came to Corinth, he said, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is the central question of the universe. And can I give you a a little encouragement on this end from history? History from the life of George Mueller. Some of you know that, that name. He was the famous evangelist and founder of the Ashley Down Orphanage in Bristol, England. He wrote this, quote, In November 1844, I began to pray for the conversion of five individuals. I prayed every day, without a single intermission, whether sick or in health, on the land or on sea, and whatever the pressure of my engagements might be, 18 months elapsed before the first of the five was converted, close quote. In the account, it goes on, it would be five more years before the second one came to Christ. So he continued to pray for the other three. It was six more years before the third man came to Christ. When he died, he had faithfully prayed for the last two for 52 years. And then several years after his death, these two also came to the saving knowledge of Christ. You have that loved one that hasn't come to Christ yet? You pray. And you pray every day. You bring them before the throne of grace. Watch what he can do. The reason we're to be engaged in this is because we know the only Savior that there is, Christ, and we know the Father's heart to save men by the public testimony of Christ's substitutionary death. We know that He is their only hope of reconciliation to the Father. And we pray in His name and for His purposes in concert with His will to see Him glorified in the redemption of men's souls. There's only one mediator between God, and mankind. It's all centered in Jesus Christ. Which brings us to the end. The empowerment of prayer. Verse 7. It's It's—it's toward this end, Paul says, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling you the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. You see, prayer and proclamation go hand in hand. Paul sees the sum of his own commission and ministry, the conversion of men's souls, so he knows full well that... The most clear and reasonable and profound and skillful proclamation of the gospel is powerless apart from the work of the Spirit. So he pleads for his mission to be supported and empowered by prayer. We heard it just from our missionary last Sunday, did we not? Pray for us, pray for us, pray for us. He wasn't just being religiously polite, he's saying, This is how we live. For Paul, it's not just some nice religious sentiment. To be praying for his ministry. Prayer is absolutely essential. You see this in a number of his letters. In Ephesians 6, he, pr- he says, pray that I might have the right words to use and that I might be bold in my proclamation. In, first, in uh, Colossians 4, he says, pray for open doors of proclamation. And in 1 and 2 Thessalonians, that the word might spread rapidly with, and received with the honor with which it's due. As Pastor Matt preaches the gospel from this pulpit, week after week, pray, beloved. Enter into the work with Him. Enter into Christ's work and plead for the souls of men both inside and outside this church. Pray. It's God's appointed means and it pleases Him to accomplish His will through it. Let me close with just two things then. First of all then, pray. That's that's the text. And if you're not a Christian here today, while it's obvious that this passage and the main part of this teaching uh, was written to believers, and you've heard our exhortation to my brothers and sisters in Christ, there's something in prayer for you here too. I want to go back to J.C. Ryle, who I cited at the beginning. Let me quote him. It's a little extended, but you'll, you'll grasp it. Prayer is absolutely needful to a man's salvation, he writes. I say no man or woman can expect to be saved who does not pray. I hold salvation by grace as strongly as anyone. I would gladly offer free and full pardon to the greatest sinner that ever lived. I would not hesitate to stand by his dying bed and say, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ even now and you shall be saved. But that a man can have salvation without asking for it, I cannot see in the Bible. That a man will receive pardon of his sins, who will not so much as lift up his heart inwardly and say, Lord Jesus, give it to me, this I cannot find. Nobody will be saved by his prayers, but I cannot find that without prayer anybody will be saved. It's absolutely needful to salvation that a man should pray. He's really just building off of Romans 10, 13. Scripture says it is everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord who is saved. Will you do that today? There's only one mediator between God and mankind, the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you call to him, he says he turns no one away who comes to him. I don't know what your past has been. I don't know the situation you're in today. But I know the Christ who saves sinners. Call out to Him. He delivers. He saves. He regenerates. He promises. And He brings it all to pass. And lastly... Given that this entire section was an exhortation to prayer with a focus on intercession, I want to close with an example of such from an earlier age. This isn't mine. Now, even if you don't know the name Lancelot Andrews, you and countless others have been impacted by him. As one of the chief translators, he was a master of 15 languages, as one of the chief translators of the King James Bible, once the translation was done, the committee left it largely up to Andrews to give the English its music and its cadence. He was the master of the language. That, that, that's what he was given. And among the remaining works of Andrews, are several volumes of his private devotions. I have found them just extraordinarily uh, pleasant for my own soul. And in one of his prayers, it is one of his prayers, entitled An Act of Intercession, that I'm going to close with. So I'm gonna, you're going to pray with me. We're going to bow our hearts and heads together as I read his prayer. Pray with him. Pray with me. It is an extraordinary example. I've changed only the smallest things. Let us pray first for the church. For the churches throughout the whole world. That is for their verity, unity, and stability. That in all charity may flourish and truth be a living principle. For our church, that what is wanting in it may be supplied. What is unsound corrected that all heresies, schisms, scandals, as well public as private, may be removed. Lord, correct the wandering. Convert the unbelieving. Increase the faith of the church. Destroy heresies. Expose the crafty enemies. Bruise the violent. We pray for our pastors, that they may rightly divide, that they may rightly walk, that while they teach, others themselves may learn. For the people, that they seek not to be wise above measure, but may be persuaded by reason and yield to the authority of superiors. For governments, their stability and peace. For our nation, state, and city, that they may fare well and prosperously and be freed from all danger and inconvenience. For the president, Help him now, O Lord. O Lord, send him now prosperity. Crown him with the array of truth and glory. Speak good things to his heart for thy church and thy people. For the prudence of his counselors and Congress. The equity and integrity of the judges. The courage of the army. The temperance of the people and their godly simplicity. For the rising generation, whether in universities or in schools, that as they increase in age, they may also increase in wisdom and in favor with God and man. For them that show themselves benevolent, whether to the church or to the poor and needy, reward thou them sevenfold into their bosom. Let their souls dwell at ease and their seed inherit the earth. Blessed is he that considers the needy that it may please you to reward all our benefactors with eternal blessings for the benefits they've bestowed upon us upon earth. Let them obtain everlasting rewards in heaven, that it may please thee to behold and to relieve the miseries of the poor and the captives, that it may please thee of thy merciful compassion to restore the frail lapses of the flesh and to strengthen them that are falling. That it may please Thee graciously to accept our reasonable service. That it may please Thee to raise our minds to heavenly desires. That it may please Thee to regard us with the eyes of Thy compassion. That it may please Thee to preserve the souls of us and ours from everlasting damnation. That it may please Thee to grant unto me with those for whom I have prayed, or for whom I am in any way bound to pray, and with all the people of God, an entrance into thy kingdom, there to behold thy presence in righteousness, and to be satisfied with glory. We beseech thee to hear us, good Lord. Amen.